Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this year, the U.N. issued its Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity Ecosystem Services, and it said that nature nature is declining at rates unprecedented in human history. The chair of the U.N. report, Sir Robert Rotson, said, The health of ecosystems on which we and all other species depend is deteriorating more rapidly than ever. We're eroding the very foundations of our economies, livelihoods, food security, health, and quality of life worldwide. Yet in the U.S., the federal government continues to roll back environmental protections at a rapid clip to favor extraction industries and chemical companies. We're going to turn our attention to what has been happening with the Endangered Species Act, which was the big headline yesterday in the newspaper. The Endangered Species Act is under attack from the Interior Department. And with me is Rebecca Riley, Legal Director for the Nature Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks for joining me, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Um, You know, what happened yesterday seems to be... um, kind of a long-standing issue with the Endangered Species Act. It's been under attack by the Republicans for some time. Can you give us that? They've tried to attempt things in Congress before. What is the framework for understanding what happened yesterday? So the Endangered Species Act is actually one of our most successful environmental laws. It was passed in 1973 and remarkably signed by Richard Nixon. And when it was passed, it was very popular, very wide bipartisan support. But over the years, that support has eroded. And we've seen, starting in the early 2000s, we started to see a lot of congressional attacks on the on the law. So they were trying to roll it back, trying to weaken it. But as it turns out, the American public really supports the Endangered Species Act. So they were n- never able to do that successfully. Unfortunately, now we have an administration who has no problem doing whatever they can to weaken wildlife protections. And what they did yesterday was they finalized regulations that across the board weaken protections for endangered species. So they essentially did this by changing the rules that uh, make up the Endangered Species Act. That's right. They changed the rules that implement the act. And that's really where the rubber hits the road. You know, if we change how the Department of the Interior and Commerce implement the Endangered Species Act, that changes a lot of how how well it really works. One of the things they did was make it easier to remove a species from the endangered list. And they've been critical saying that uh, 1,650 species have been listed as threatened or endangered and just 47 have been delisted. Is that a legitimate criticism? So the thing is, it takes actually a very long time to recover a species, especially because we wait until the last possible moment to list it as endangered. So what we're not doing is taking the time or 
devoting the resources that are necessary to get species to recovery. What what needs to happen if we all we all have the goal of getting these species off of the endangered species list? That's a win for everyone. But in order to do that, we really need to dedicate resources to it, and that just hasn't been happening. They also criticize the idea that threatened species get the same. Uh, treatment as endangered species, a uh, different classification. Uh, do threatened species now will get some other kind of consideration? That's right. This is one of the most frustrating changes to me because what's been happening all along is actually very efficient. And the Trump administration talks a lot about regulatory rollbacks to make things efficient. And the way what they've been doing is giving threatened species automatic protections. So no rulemaking required, just goes in place right away. And if the agency thought it was appropriate, they could do a special rule, which is called a 4D rule, to kind of modify those protections where necessary. So for the vast majority of threatened species, they got the automatic protections. But every once in a while, a species got a 4D rule. Now that automatic process isn't going to be allowed. And the, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service is already really behind and really underfunded. And so they already don't have the resources they need to protect species and to list species. And this new requirement that they issue a new rule every time there's a threatened species out there is just going to add to that workload. And that means delay in protections, weaker protections, and more species that'll be in trouble. One of the changes that got the most attention is the economic assessment and when to conduct an economic assessment in determining when an endangered species is is endangered. How do you uh, begin to bring economic factors into the decision? Because previously there are no economic factors in the decision. You just try to figure out if it's endangered. Now you bring them in. The law is actually very clear that it's not legal to consider economics during listing, and that's for good reason. If we start letting economics influence listing decisions, all of a sudden a species that lives somewhere where the oil and gas industry wants to drill won't get protections. But despite that very clear mandate in the law, the administration has moved to try to insert those economic considerations we absolutely think these decisions need to be based on science, not the dollar signs, and that this is something that will be challenging in court. Now, the man uh, who is the Interior Secretary now, David Bernhardt, he was a uh, lobbyist with the oil and gas industry. And the idea ultimately here is that the oil and gas industry are going to benefit from this. There will be more places where they can drill for oil and gas. That's absolutely right. The only winners in this regulatory rollback are industry interests who want to develop in wildlife habitat like the oil and gas industry. And the idea that you're going to um, – all these changes that happen environmentally with the Trump administration do all end up in court, as you said. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kind of uh, likelihood is there that these changes to the Endangered Species Act are going to – sustain a legal challenge? Well, the good news that we've had during the Trump administration is that when they take these actions, they often do it in illegal ways. And so we've been very successful in going to court and getting their decisions reversed. So that's what we plan to do here. Um, I wanted to ask a couple questions about some of the um, 
other things that are going on aside from the Endangered Species Act. And I noticed that um, there was a particular chemical that the EPA refused to ban recently, and its name is Clofirifos. Clopirifos. Clopirifos. You were trying to give me a lesson on pronouncing it. I don't know. It, it, it sounds like it is a bad chemical that hurts even you know children, human beings. Uh, it goes beyond species. Um, but why is the EPA reluctant to ban this chemical? This is a very toxic pesticide. It's a neurotoxin, and it's particularly bad for children's brains. And the Obama administration was set to take this chemical off the market. But when Trump came into office, they put that on hold, and now they refuse to do that, despite you know the court order telling them they needed to make a stronger, smarter decision. And this is something that is uh, widely dispersed in, in crops and in fruits and vegetables. And uh, in the environment, it will affect um, species, animals all, all over the place. These pesticides that are throughout our environment are having massive effects on endangered species. I think the pollinator crisis is something we talk about a lot. When you put insecticides into the environment, you can't be that surprised when they kill off a lot of insects like bees. And they're so essential to our way of life. They pollinate one out of every three bites of food we eat. And other countries are moving on lots of insecticides like neonics. Uh, the European Union is declassifying certain categories of neonics. Uh, can you explain what's going on there? Sure. So neonics are a class of pesticides that scientists know are causing problems for bees. They're in the environment at very, very high levels, and they're very what's called persistent. What that means is once they get into the environment, they stay there for a really long time. So because insects and because bees are so important to the environment, other governments have been moving to restrict these chemicals. So the European Union, as you mentioned, has moved to restrict them. And Canada is taking steps in that direction as well. But here in the United States, we have yet to do anything. Um, there's another issue that was uh, popping up recently. The EPA plans to rewrite clean, the Clean Water Act to fast-track pipelines. And that just happened a few days ago as well. Um, when you add all this up, it's... Um, it's almost overwhelming that the, 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 it's almost like industry is running all of these decisions in the Trump administration. Well, industry is literally running the Trump administration because many of the political appointees at the top of these agencies come directly from those industries, which they now regulate. Um, if people want to challenge what is happening and, and do something about this, uh, what do you suggest they do? Speak out. Tell your legislator. You know, Congress has a lot of power to affect these sorts of decisions. Uh, and, you know, go to NRDC's website. We have a lot of action alerts where you can send letters to the agencies to tell them how you feel about these various decisions. Rebecca Riley is legal director for the Nature Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks for joining me and talking about a host of things that are going on here with the Trump administration and protections for wildlife and people. Thanks for having me.
We want to go back and add up what's been happening lately with the Forest Service, the Interior Department, and the EPA with Adam Kramer. He's Executive Director of Outdoor Alliance, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that unites natural recreation organizations for conservation uh, issues. Thanks a lot for joining us, Adam, and good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Jerome. Now, there's something that's been going on with the U.S. Forest Service, and they've got um, a proposal to uh, stop kind of public input on what is happening on forest lands. And this is a a bedrock issue with the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which was created to allow people to comment on on what's happening with the uh, national forests. Um, Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah, certainly. Uh, NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, as you point out, uh, passed back in the early 1970s, and it it applies to the entire federal government. So anytime the government's going to take an action that's going to have a major impact on the environment, it requires an analysis, it requires public um, visibility, and the opportunity for some input. So uh, what the Forest Service is doing is they've got, currently they've got regulations, about how they apply uh, NEPA, and they're proposing to make some changes. And the idea is that it'll curtail enormously the amount of public input that would um, happen before, say, logging or some kind of uh, extraction industry came in? Oh, yeah. Uh, Far beyond just logging or extractive industry. The way that the regulations are set up now is that anytime uh, they're going to do something that's going to impact the environment, uh, they've got to let the public know whether it's a big thing or medium-sized thing or a small thing. And the, what they're looking to do with these proposed regulations is just have public involvement for the really big things. And that's important because most of the things that happen don't fit into that into that category. So as a result, um, many activities are going to be uh, pursued in a way that the public's not going to have visibility and not going to have an opportunity to uh, share what they think. Have you had any experience uh, with this working, with uh, public participation changing the way land is managed? Oh, all the time. I mean, when the public's involved, uh, it helps the Forest Service do its job. I mean, they have to manage these public lands that belong to everybody under this idea of multiple use. And uh, NEPA doesn't require any uh, specific type of outcome, um, but it requires a process so the public could be involved and help the Forest Service uh, strike uh, the best balance uh, for the decision-making. So the public is cut out, uh, the decisions are less resilient, um, they don't have so much public support. But when the public's involved, decisions tend to be a bit better. Now, you had an experience with this in Montana, I understand? Yeah, in the Custer Gallatin National Forest in Montana, um, the Forest Service wanted to do a vegetation management um, uh, project. It was going to be pursued under the under the, uh, categorical exclusion, which means it doesn't have to have a, not, not a ton of analysis. Uh, but under the current regulations, the public is uh, required to, to have some notice and to be involved. And as a result, um, uh, you know, mountain bikers, backcountry skiers, snowmobilers, folks that live in the area were able to share their perspectives on the project, give a little bit of feedback. They made some modifications, and the project was able to move forward with public support. Uh, now, are, there's a certain process that's going on right now that I understand was extended yesterday. 
to, to, to comment on this change to the National Environmental Policy Act? Yeah, that's right. The Forest Service's uh, proposed regulations in terms of how they uh, implement uh, NEPA, uh, they extended the rulemaking process. And that's, it's important to note is this is, it's a proposed change, uh, which is it's great for the public to have an opportunity to weigh in on that. So they extended the, the comment period for a couple of weeks. So if you have sentiments about the issue, you've got to, you have an opportunity to, to share what you think with the Forest Service. And um, it, it sounds like a lot of organizations are riled up about this. I know the National Audubon Society and other people who are interested in what's going on in the forests uh, all want to have input into the National Environmental Policy Act and all want to keep it strong. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, public lands, it's it's a defining feature of this country that belong to everybody. And NEPA enables people to not just be in these places, experience these places, but have a say in how they're managed, right? And able to share what they think in terms of um, decisions that are going to impact their experiences, impact clean water, uh, habitat. Uh, so uh, the, the, the prospect of dialing back substantially public involvement in terms of how we are able to manage public lands it's a big deal. And once again, the people can go to uh, what website to, to weigh in on this? Yeah. So at Outdoor Alliance, we've got an opportunity for people to learn more about the issue and weigh in with the Forest Service. But you go directly to the Forest Service as well. And uh, there's a comment portal there and uh, to, to share what you think. And your earlier guest mentioned uh, checking with uh, uh, your congressional delegation. Uh, that's also a, a really wonderful thing to consider as well. Adam Kramer is executive director of the Outdoor Alliance, a nonprofit that unites natural recreation organizations for the conservation of public land. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening with the National Environmental Policy Act. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the pro-democracy protests in Moscow. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The protests in Hong Kong have captured global headlines, but the protests going on in Russia deserve some attention, too. 
They're the biggest protests in Russia in years, and it was the fifth consecutive weekend with protests in Moscow. There's been police brutality and plenty of arrests. With me is Paul Goebel, former special advisor to the Secretary of State. He's an analyst on diplomatic, social, and ethnic matters in the former Soviet Union. His blog is Window on Eurasia. Good to talk with you, Paul Goebel. Thank you for having me. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what these protests are really all about. They are essentially pro-democracy protests. Well, it's important to understand exactly what they're about. These demonstrations happened, and as you say, they've been increasing in size over the last five weekends because the government violated its own laws. Uh, The government, the Russian government, wants to restrict opposition candidates from getting into local councils, lest that be a springboard to their being elected to the Duma in the elections in 2021. So what the government did is pass a law requiring that those who wanted to run get 3.5% of the electorate to sign petitions asking them, asking the authorities to allow those candidates to be be listed on the ballot. A number of opposition candidates got far more than 3.5%, and so they should have been easily put on the ballot. But the authorities didn't want any any opposition figure on the ballot, so they simply found ways of saying that, well, many of these signatures were false, falsified, and they dismissed the candidates. That led to the protest, uh, which, has, as you say, has grown from about 10,000 a month ago to 50,000 this past Saturday. The focus of the protest about getting on the ballot is both the strength of these protests and perhaps its ultimate weakness. It's a strength because it's given Muscovites a very specific issue to complain about. They are seeking one thing, and that is that the candidates who got 3.5% uh, of the of the electorate uh, on their petitions be registered for the elections on September 8th. People can understand that. It's a very simple issue. The government violated its own laws, and so people are prepared to get go into the street. At the same time, many people are over-projecting what these protests may mean, because after September 8th, after these elections happen, the question of getting on this ballot will become null and void. There simply won't be a reason, there won't be any possibility of a renewed election to the Moscow City Councils, and there won't be another election in the Russian capital until at least 2021, if if the current schedule holds. So that the growth of protest is about this one issue. It's not a broad brush, broad-scale movement like we saw in 2011 and 2012. And so it may very well uh, grow again uh, next weekend and perhaps the following, but then it could peter out. And that's a, a very big risk for such a tightly focused protest. Why is the Russian or the Moscow government being so uh, heavy handed about this? Because if you go and look at some of the videos, it's bad. They, they're beating people up in the streets and they're arresting thousands of people. And this is a little election where, um, you know, it doesn't seem likely to create uh, any serious opposition to uh, to Putin, which which is you know in the in the major Duma in two years, it seems like a a lot of hammer for a little event. Well, I think there are 
uh, a couple of re- a couple of things going on. First, though, I want to say that what the city of Moscow is doing is fully backed by the Kremlin, despite what uh, the uh, Putin's press secretary said today. Um, these were federal uh, uh, force structures, not people controlled by the city. So um, clearly there will be an effort made in Russia and, of course, in the West to shift the blame on the city government in Moscow. But in fact, this was a this was a decision that came from on high. Clearly, there were people who wanted to send a message to the opposition that you're going to be blocked now and you're going to be blocked in 2021. And we're not afraid to use force. We're not afraid to violate our own laws. Uh, I think that's one of the drivers of this. I think another driver is that there are people in the security forces who were who wanted to go much further than the mayor or the Kremlin, wanted to be really brutal as a way of keeping the regime from adopting a more uh, conciliatory approach. There was briefly last week uh, what some people called the revolt of the force structures where a group of um, officers put out a statement saying we want a really tough line and we don't want to back down. Clearly there are people who want to make sure that Putin is in a box, that he can't very well desert, back away very far from this tough line, or he could lose what has been the chief prop of his regime going into the 2021 Duma elections and whatever is going to happen in 2024 when there will be presidential elections that under the Constitution, Putin can't run again, uh, but people are figuring out ways that that may happen anyway. Do you think that the uh, upshot of the violence is that Putin is nervous, that he is losing popular support, that the economy is not going as great as it could? And that in two years, it's probably not going to get any better. And, you know, it, um, basically the idea is don't let it snowball now. Right. I think Putin is very, very much afraid that if the opposition uh, is able to bring out 100,000 people in the streets of Moscow, and it's worth noting that on Saturday there were demonstrations, much smaller to be sure, in 40 other Russian cities, suggesting this is a much bigger issue, or at least there were people in these other places who wanted to be seen as supporting the Moscow opposition. I think Putin doesn't know what to do. His uh, his uh, standing in the polls is now lower than it has than it has been since 2003. His his standing still looks pretty good compared to a lot of Western politicians. But this is a dictatorship, and if you can't guarantee that your support is in the 70s, you have a problem. When 33 percent, only 33 percent of Russians today say they'd like to see him reelected. He's got it. He's got a problem. That's why I think there is a is a struggle going on between those who believe you have to crack down so hard that there's no going back, and who want to put Putin in that box, and those who say we'd better find a compromise to recover some of our standing, or we really are going to face a crisis uh, two years from now and five years from now. I don't think Putin knows what he what he wants to do. I think he'd prefer to not have this choice presented to him. Uh, 
but the demonstrators in the street are forcing the issue. And I think you're absolutely right to point to the behavior of the Russian force structures rather than the the behavior of the demonstrators as the key uh, driver from now on. People are angry now at the way in which the authorities treated the protesters more than they are animated by the issue that brought people into the streets in the first place. This has legs, and some of the things that the Russian government is doing uh, are going to add to that. For example, a number of opposition journalists in the last week have received draft notices. (laughs) In other words, you report for the opposition, we're going to put you in the military. Uh, There have been arrests not only of people who were there, but of their relatives. There's been some confiscation of property. All of these these tactics were tried out earlier in Ingushetia and elsewhere on the periphery of Russia. Now they're being applied in Moscow. And uh, people are angry about that. You can imagine the reaction of journalists when their fellow journalists are uh, being uh, drafted for articles they've written. I'm talking with Paul Goebel, former special advisor to the Secretary of State. His blog is Window on Eurasia, and uh, he's a specialist in ethnic matters in the former Soviet Union. And before I let you go, Paul, I did want to ask you um, about what's happening with the nuclear-powered missile explosion that's been happening in Siberia. And, you know, we're getting very official comments out of the Russians' uh, government. They've seemed, you know, kind of uh, uh, defensive about this. Uh, but there was a village that was uh, evacuated today, and, yes. and 450 people in this village. Um, and it sounds like, the, you know, I, this thing has been pretty serious, and uh, maybe more so than they're letting on. It's very serious, and Russian government response has made the situation worse. People in Russia are openly speculating that the explosion at Severodabinsk, the name of the little town uh, in the Russian north, is now a Chernobyl or a Fukushima, that radiation levels, which the Russian government said had gone up only by a factor of three and were now back to where they were, are being reported by uh, local activists of being 20 times normal level and at a least, therefore at a lethal level. Uh, people are trying to buy medicines that they have heard uh, will fight radiation. There has been evacuation. Clearly something went really, really wrong. Uh, there are discussions and various uh, theories have been offered, various versions of events have been offered. The best I can say right now is that there was a radiation leak caused either by a missile test or by a reactor breakdown uh, in that town, uh, and that people are very frightened. They are especially frightened that the Russian government has behaved this time around much as it's behaved in the past by not putting out the full story early on, and by the fact that this is the third in a row Uh, in a very short interval of time where you've had a nuclear accident or one that appears likely that people are upset about. One was only a a couple weeks ago. uh, You had a 
a nuclear submarine, a Russian nuclear submarine sink with the loss of much of the crew, right. uh, where there was a radiation issue. And second, you have now that Moscow has launched its the first the world's first floating atomic power station that is supposed to go along the north coast of uh, the Russian Federation, uh, but that many people feel is untested and untried and could be a source of environmental contamination. Uh, yeah. Earlier this week, there was a big set of articles in the Alaskan press suggesting that this could bring radiation over the state of Alaska. Well, it's always good to keep an eye on what's happening with uh, nuclear issues anywhere in the world, certainly in Russia. Thanks for joining us, Paul Goebel, former special advisor to the Secretary of State. His blog is Window on Eurasia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about organ donation in the U.S. and compare it to elsewhere. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Low organ donation is a big problem in the United States. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, 20 people die each day waiting for a transplant. 95% of American adults say they support organ donation, but only 58 opt in to be organ donors. For possible solutions, we had Worldview's Jenny Friedland talk with a bioethicist, Greg Morlock, a senior teaching fellow at the University of Warwick. England will go to an opt-out system for organ donation starting in spring of 2020, meaning that everybody is assumed to be an organ donor unless they declare otherwise. And the English system for donating organs is radically different than how we do it in the U.S., the way that we currently operate in England is that we have an opt-in system. So if you want to become an organ donor register, one of the ways to achieve that is by signing the organ donor register. And then uh, if you do die in a way that will allow your organs to be donated, uh, that is taken to be an indication of your wishes. And then there is a likelihood that your organs will end up being donated. So the move to an opt-out system means that you don't have to actually take that active step to join the organ donor register. Um, so opt-out is sometimes called presumed consent, and it means that unless there is any indication to the contrary, so unless you decide that you don't want to be on the organ donor register, you will be placed on it by default. So it's essentially a, a changing of the default position uh, rather than anything more radical. But the aim is obviously to increase the number of people who do ultimately donate their organs. And what's the public response to all of this been like? I know we haven't tried this particular thing in the U.S. When surveys have been conducted in, in England, 
uh, the vast majority of people support organ donation. So this isn't a particularly controversial move. The issue is that although there's so much public support for organ donation, only around a third of the British population have actually joined the organ donor register via the opt-in system. So something's obviously not working and that support for organ donation isn't translating into actual donors. So it's generally been received very positively. Um, there are inevitably some people who interpret it wrongly and raise concerns about, for example, uh, state ownership of people's bodies, people feeling that they're having their, their choices restricted and decisions are being made for them. But in reality, that's not really a correct interpretation of the opt-out system. And as I understand it, families still have the opportunity to say no after a family member has passed. Is that correct? That is correct. So it will be what we call a soft opt-out system. So even if you haven't opted out, so you are on the organ donor register, your family will always be consulted to see whether they think that you would be happy for your organs to be donated. So just as there are some people at the moment who are very much in favour of organ donation, but never actually get around to joining the organ donor register, there's a chance that there will be some people who don't want their organs to be donated, uh, but under an opt-out system won't get around to removing themselves from the organ donor register. So allowing the family to have a say at least goes some way to ensuring that people's wishes will be respected as much as possible. And obviously, as you mentioned, one of the goals of this is to increase the availability of organs. There's shortages in many countries. So I was wondering what other countries have tried this and has it worked? So I think of most relevance to England is Wales, our next door neighbours who have tried this. And it has worked slightly. It hasn't resulted in a really dramatic increase in the number of organ donors. I think that people presume that a move to an opt-out system will be the sort of fantastic solution to the chronic organ shortage. But judging by Wales as an example, that just hasn't happened. Um, in fact, in the couple of years after opt-out was introduced, uh, the number of organ donors did dip slightly. Um, so in all likelihood, it will increase the number of donors slightly, but it certainly won't be substantial. So Wales has had a slight increase in the number of donors since opt-out was introduced, which is obviously a fantastic thing. It allows more lives to be saved, but it's not the solution to the organ shortage, not in and of itself. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that it's not so much the move to an opt-out system that is responsible for these sorts of increases. It's all of the, the accompanying public campaigning about organ donation, the increased awareness of it, and everything that goes hand in hand with a move to an opt-out system rather than the move to opt-out per se. Greg Morlock is a senior teaching fellow at the University of Warwick, and he specializes in bioethics and organ transplants. Um, so, Greg, another country I know that's done this is Spain, and some sort of look to that as the model of how this could work well. So Spain's system is just generally very pro-organ donation. They have specialist staff who are there to focus on ensuring that organs are donated. The way that patients are treated in the lead up to death is favorable to organ donation. Uh, consent rates are high because people are given opportunities to donate and there's general public support for organ donation. Uh, so it really is a combination of factors. And other countries have tried to use some of these factors. So in England, and throughout the rest of the UK, there are 
a staff dedicated to organ donation. We have specialist nurses for organ donation whose job it is to speak to, to family members and to try to ensure that people's wishes are respected and that people make good decisions. Uh, and that's something that we have learned from Spain as being an effective way to promote organ donation. And it's part of a whole approach to organ donation of, of framing organ donation as something positive, something that is a good thing. So it's obviously tragic and devastating for people when they lose a loved one and it, it's normally um, unexpected circumstances. So it's obviously tragic when that happens, but organ donation is an opportunity to bring about something positive from something so catastrophic. And I know that you in particular look at this from a philosophical and ethical standpoint. Um, you talked about some of the sort of pressure points, if you will, with the logistics of getting this rolled out. But what are some of the ethical concerns regarding the move to an opt-out system? So the real ethical concern is that we currently tend to place respecting people's wishes at the center of organ donation. So as a society, we know that there, there are ways of getting more organs for transplantation, which would be literally to make it compulsory but we don't consider that to be acceptable because it would be overriding people's wishes. People obviously have very strong and diverse beliefs about what they want to happen to their bodies after death. And as a society, we place respecting those wishes um, above and beyond simply maximizing the number of organ donors. So the concern with opt-out systems, ethically speaking, is that you may potentially end up not respecting people's wishes. So there may be someone who doesn't want to be an organ donor, but who has not opted out of organ donation. Um, so there's a concern that their organs may be taken without really them having given their consent. So under a soft opt-out system, that's less likely to happen because family members can be consulted and hopefully you can gain an accurate picture of what a person's wishes actually were. I think the other issue is that although we talk about presumed consent, and we use that in the same breath as opt-out systems. Normally, for consent to be valid consent, there are certain ethical requirements. So it has to be informed consent. The reality is that if you ask the average person on the street about organ donation, and if you test their knowledge about organ donation, they don't know very much. So they'll probably know that their organs can be donated, but they won't know the types of situations in which their organs may be donated. They won't know the different ways that you can be declared dead in order to allow your organs to be donated. Uh, there are lots of complexities around organ donation, and some of these are quite significant and um, potentially can have various impacts upon your sort of end-of-life care. And if people aren't aware of these things, then it seems to be mistaken to take a lack of removing yourself from the organ donor register as presumed consent for donation. So if you were the one rolling this system out, if you were in charge, what are some of the protections that you would put in place to prevent some of the issues you just highlighted? So I think that having the soft opt-out system, so allowing family members to have a say. Um, the other issue, of course, is that in order for an opt-out system to be considered pretty ethical, uh, it needs to be the case that people are aware of it. So alongside the rolling out of such a system, you need to have a big public awareness campaign. Uh, what we wouldn't want to happen is for people to be effectively placed on the organ donor register without them knowing that this has happened. So if you were to just implement those things, these 
big educational campaigns, would that sort of do the job of increasing organ donation rates without needing an opt-out system? Has anyone tried that? Uh, so there have been attempts to raise awareness of organ donation, but they're always uh, financially constrained. And I think that really the only time that organ donation gets this amount of publicity is when systems undergo dramatic changes, such as the move to an opt-out system. So the move to an opt-out system gets people talking about organ donation. Um, it's no longer something that's just discussed in, in hospitals. It's discussed by everybody. Everyone's interested in organ donation. And this is actually one of the ways to increase rates of, of donation, get people to talk about it, get people to tell other people what their wishes are. Greg Morlock is a senior teaching fellow at the University of Warwick, and he specializes in bioethics and organ transplants. So mostly we've been talking here about an opt-out system, a soft opt-out. We also talked a little bit about the opt-in system that a lot of countries have. I was wondering, are there are there alternatives to those two systems? I know Iran has something different. So Iran has a radically different system. So in terms of organ donation, you don't have to wait until you're dead to donate an organ. You can donate a kidney relatively straightforwardly whilst you're still alive. And most countries uh, allow that to happen, but don't allow you to receive payment for it. Uh, where Iran differs is that they actually allow you to be paid to donate a kidney. So most countries have long waiting lists for kidney transplants. You can wait years to receive a transplant. Uh, Iran doesn't have that problem. Um, people are paid, people are more willing to donate. Therefore, there is not a shortage of kidneys in Iran. Um, ethically, it raises potential issues because we know that there's a risk of, of exploitation. Some people don't like the idea of, of money changing hands in exchange for body parts. Uh, the idea of bodies becoming commodified makes a lot of people feel quite uncomfortable. Um, so other countries have resisted a move to a system like that, but it's undeniable that it has increased the number of kidneys available, but um, it probably comes at a sort of ethical cost. And how did England go about making this particular decision to move to an opt-out? What factors do you take into account to know if this is a good idea for another country to pursue? So this is something that's been going on for a very long time. So I started working in transplant ethics about 10 years ago. And before then, uh, people had been talking about a potential move to an opt-out system. And it was decided at that point that it wasn't a good idea. There, there were objections to it. So it didn't happen. But I think that we've now finally got to this point via just, yeah, a lot of, uh, of pressure from people working in transplantation, uh, looking at the Spanish model and the, the numbers of donors there. It seems like intuitively it's a way to increase donation rates. We did have a big public consultation on the potential move to an opt-out system, but I think it was a done deal really before the results of that consultation were in. Uh, that we would be moving to such a system. All of the big political parties in the UK started to support the move to an opt-out system at roughly the same point in time. And there is a lot of public support for it. And looking around the world, what do you see on the horizon in this field? Are there new things people are looking to try? Do you expect this to catch on in other countries? So one of the things that actually Israel tries, which is, is quite an interesting idea, and it's very controversial and I'm not sure that it would be appropriate for all countries, um, is that in Israel, if you are on the organ donor register or if your family members have um, donated organs, uh, then you can receive priority if you ever need a transplant. 
so that essentially incentivizes people to donate their organs or to agree to donate a relative's organs. And again, it's been associated with a slight increase in organ donation rates, uh, which seems like a positive thing, but it's the sort of thing that certainly the UK balks at a little bit. Uh, we don't like the idea of, of resources being allocated according to behaviour or past behaviour. So for such a system to be implemented over here, it would require really dramatic changes to how the National Health Service is run. But I think that in addition to getting more organs for transplantation uh, or increasing the number of organ donors, there are other options available via various sort of technological developments in terms of getting more organs from the number of donors that you have, making sure that organs aren't wasted. And there are now even ways of, of looking after organs after they've been retrieved from people's bodies to actually improve their function and make them viable for transplantation, whereas maybe five or 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been. So it's important to get more people to become organ donors. That's always a good move, but also making better use of what we've potentially got access to is also another sort of way to improve the system. So now that we've talked about all these different strategies that countries might use, all these different systems, I was wondering from your perspective, as somebody who's researched this a lot, what would your ideal system look like? So... I think that my, <laughs> to be honest, my, my ideal system uh, would probably be one of almost compulsory organ donation. Uh, my view on organ donation is actually quite straightforward, which is that when we die, we have no further use for our bodies. Um, we know that really the options for what can happen to our remains and our organs are relatively limited. So they can be buried or they can be burned or they can be uh, donated to save people's lives. I think that's a pretty straightforward decision for me. Uh, so in my, my ideal secular world, um, that would be the case. Now, obviously, we live in a, a more diverse society than that. And other people have radically different views and we have to respect those views. So I think that giving people freedom to determine what happens to their body is important. Uh, that's something that, that has to happen. But I think that we should do everything that we can do to encourage people to donate their organs, because this is something that saves or improves people's lives radically. It's absolutely transformational, the difference that it makes. And the greater number of people that we can get to do that, the better. So I think it's about extolling the virtues of organ donation. This is an opportunity to do something amazing and at pretty much zero cost to yourself. It's a really rare opportunity to do something like that at such low cost. Greg Morlock is a senior teaching fellow at the University of Warwick, and he specializes in bioethics and organ transplants. Thank you so much for joining us, Greg. Thank you very much. That was Worldview's production assistant Jenny Friedland talking with bioethicist Greg Morlock about organ donation. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will have our Global Notes segment where we feature uh, Catalina Maria Johnson and talk about international music. And we will talk about some of the music that is coming out of El Paso. Uh, the mass shootings in El Paso have produced a lot of people expressing themselves with music, and we will hear some of that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.